disruptors and curious minds. Welcome to another episode of Thinking on Paper, where we look at the intersection of culture and emerging tech, poke it around, run it through machines, brain machines, <laughs> network hardware, spin it around, see what comes out. My name is Jeremy Gilbertson. I'm a uh, builder and futurist at the intersection of tech, music, and story. With me, as always, is my great friend, Mark Fielding. Uh, Mark's a great storyteller. He writes lore for uh, video games, for he writes for fashion. He does all kinds of things and uh, so grateful to That's have true. you pick apart tech and culture with me. Mark, how are you? Um, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, a, week of, a week of juxtaposition and contrast this week. So yeah, all of those things. Um, I, this week, though, it's been in fashion. Though. I've been writing for Louis Vuitton again and I've been in China not physically, unfortunately, but in the in the virtual China, exploring brand AR and metaverse activations in China and kind of looking at it through the lens of strategy for European brands because there's a lot going on in China. Um, not much decentralization, but the tech's pretty cool. And there's it seems like every brand is it has this insatiable thirst for this. Um, immersive content so i've been exploring that it's fascinating like even the even the ccp has got the metaverse in its five-year plan so yeah there's a lot going on so i've been doing that it's really um, it's really the juxtaposition is the is the right way i mean you think you know you think about china you think a lot about centralization right even more so than than, than many other countries right but there's significant investment in in what was you know metaverse is kind of a rough term at this point, right? But like you know the the augmented experiences, XR, uh, digital experiences, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, like Alibaba, Tencent, like all the big major Chinese tech companies are pouring money into it, and it seems that all of the the big Western brands with big client bases in China are doing the same. And there's a lot of merging. So there's brands having doing gamification to launch events in the real world, which they're also doing twin events in these individual brand virtual worlds called the metaverses, if you like. So there's a lot going on. Um, I've been doing that, but also it's Halloween and the holidays. So I've been spending a lot of time with the kids. I've been, um, I know you like mycelium networks and emergent systems. I've been foraging for my lunch again outside. So kind of, it's been a week of icky guy, like my icky guy, this passion, mission, uh, what's the other one? Yeah, vocation and profession, like combining them all into this. I mean, you know a lot about icky guy. You've been thinking about that from like a personal and a brand's perspective for a long time. But I think that this week for me has been a particularly rewarding one on every kind of front. So that's that's amazing. Yeah, Icky Guy is a big big piece of. Um, so you, we've all we talked about my uh, how I you know teach people uh, this program called Right to Know You that you know basically unlocks creativity, curiosity, and you know helps people kind of find their their purpose in a way. And you know while Icky Guy is not necessarily an output of that program, it's certainly aligned with helping people find the inputs for what could be icky guys. So I've been, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by that. And what I start thinking and tying into last week, we had a great discussion um, with, with a brilliant author about this idea of this nexus, right. In this, this interdisciplinary space between things. And what I started thinking about specifically to this episode and tying it in was um, I don't know if you've ever looked at those cards of uh, those Brian Eno cards called oblique strategies. No, 
if you haven't, I'm sure I'd love to hear in the chat if anyone has um, has messed around with uh, with those. But they're really insightful cards with great little messages on them. And one of the messages was, um, you know, the line had. Let's see, it was the line has or a line has two sides, you know, and and it just gets your brain thinking. And I wrote about this in an early writing experiment years and years ago. And I was like, no, wait, a line has definitely more than two sides. You know, it has it has a top, it has a bottom, it has a front, a back, a side, and then this place in between where these little pieces of the pencil written on a piece of paper become that line, right? So I started thinking about dividing lines as being points of connection, which goes into Nexus, which goes into Ikigai, where you're tying all of these different things together. Um, but you know, as a basis for using technology, which we'll be talking with our great guests today about. So that's, that's, what's in my head as we get going on the journey today. What about last week tying that into string theory where that line becomes an infinite number of rotating surfaces where everything is, uh, involved in that one. But, um, yeah, let's get into it. How, the, and how this is going to all work for brands are excited. But first I believe you have a quick message yes we'd love to love to give a quick shout out to our awesome friends over at ripple w-r-i-p-p-l-e they are marketing's on-demand talent platform so you got a project you got uh, a, a skill sket, skill set that you need to bring onto your team uh quickly and efficiently these guys are great they have a platform of over, of over you know three thousand uh freelance uh specialty artists technologists creative people like Mark and myself, we're actually on the platform. So um, jump in. They actually can assemble teams of interdisciplinary people together. So if you need a particular project done, they can bring all the pieces and parts. So ripple.com, Dixie might be in the thread if you have any questions, um, but we're very thankful for their support of our program. Without further ado, Mark, let's get into our guest. Yeah, let's get into our guest then. Yeah, Dominic Caraman. Welcome to the show. Dom, you, if you're on LinkedIn, you're probably aware of Dominic now. He's quite a, an, an interesting and educated voice on Web3, so it's very interesting. He runs Ikigai Labs. That's where the link comes in, a creative consultancy guiding companies through the next evolution of consumer experiences. Um, he also works for AidDrop, which is pretty interesting. I'd like to touch on that at some point, which is like a non-profit organization that builds transparent donation systems on blockchain. And he hosts the No Blueprint podcast and has a, an awesome new studio to go with that. So, ladies and gentlemen, disruptors and curious minds, welcome, Dominic. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Well, That's Dominic, for, first of all, you are generating some awesome noise in the chat. Everyone, a lot of, lot of activity, a lot of people saying hello uh, so you are, uh, you're bringing some great energy today. Um, tell us, give us a little bit of a uh, little bit of background relevant to our discussion at this, you know, at this, at connecting very different things together in one to make, uh, make something amazing. So that's a very general statement, but think about like tech and culture coming together and Ikigai and all the points coming together that led you to start what you do and how you do it. Yeah, I'll try to break this down as uh, short and concise as possible. So yeah, hi, I'm Dom. Um, I've been in the blockchain space for around, I think, eight or nine years by now, discovered blockchain or Bitcoin pretty early. I think the first time I heard about it was actually 2009, so pretty much after it got released. Um, didn't really know what this was about, seemed a bit like sus suspect to me. 
Um, fast forward, so I learned graphics design and communications. This is what my profession was back then, worked as a freelancer. And I think it was 2015 when a freelance client of mine approached me and asked if he could pay me in crypto. And I was like, oh, uh, I've heard that a uh, long, long, long time ago. Is this still around? And then I was just like, I probably should take a deeper look again. And I did. And I started to understand what was this, what, what this was really all about and where, where this possible be will lead to, and I instantly thought this is going to be extremely relevant for us as humans in the future because everything is getting more digital. I think owning your, owning your stuff on the internet and being able to self-sovereign, uh, self-sovereignly operate going to be super important. So super exciting. Fast forward, um, just like looked at blockchain and Bitcoin mostly from an investing standpoint, investment standpoint, until Web3 hit the bell. Um, and this was where I really felt home because I did not mention that, but I, but I was very active uh, in the back in the days in the gaming area. Um, so I managed a couple of esports teams, played esports myself, and we all came together in those like third-party chats. Like probably you know, you still noticed like IRC chats. Then it was Teamspeak, then it was Discord, and when Web3 hit, it was really the same feeling again. So people just coming together in chats. Nobody knows who is like behind the PFP or like who this person really is, and just coming together and trying to build stuff that makes something better. So this was where I really got hooked with Web3. Now. Once again, fast forward to the here and now, uh, I got my own uh, brand innovation lab called Ikigai, where we uh, basically accompany brands and companies on how to leverage uh, emerging and new technology to enhance like customer experiences, create new kind of consumer experiences. And as you also mentioned, um, I'm working with Aidrop, where we try to make donations more transparent and bring them on the blockchain. Um, yeah, I think that was like a long story short, quick intro. I could add a bit more about how this okay. guy thing came across, but maybe I give the word to you. Yeah, but unfortunately, Dominic, you've dropped in quite a few interesting things that we might have to go to before we get to sure. the Yuki guy thing. So you said you played professional professional esports, or yeah, like semi professional. So I couldn't really make a full living out of it, but like I think if you can make the the half living, that's like called semi. So yeah, what game I, or yeah. games? First, it was uh, Counter Strike Source, and then League of Legends for for most part. Yeah. Okay, how? So, what interests me in e gaming is I, they're so damn good. Like, how far off the like the top were you? And like, what would you have had to have done to get to the top? It, the last one is a tricky question. So I think you get there by playing insane amounts uh, of this game. I think at one point, I think it was like the third season of League of Legends. I think now we are at the 12th or 13th or 14th season. I don't know. So it was like really back then. Uh, I was on the top 2,500 players on the, Euro on the Europe server. Um, I don't think, like today it would be more special because there are much more players. But yeah, it was just like top 1% probably, even better. Yeah, you have to invest a lot. I mean, uh, I definitely had no life existing aside from my from my gaming career let's say it like this and i don't think probably it was just like because my talent is limited because i could not get any better at some point and i think it takes a lot more of just like obviously i analyzed my gameplay so i went uh, with a very strategic approach to it but i think at one point you have to be very disciplined so you have to look for your health uh, you have to look that you stay in shape so also physically and that's what many people who tend to play a lot leave aside also me um, so that resulted in not the best thing in my life. So I think after that, uh, like a de depressional phase came because if you just like are occupied for several years, only sitting alone in front of a screen and uh, you're trying to get better at the game, which is really toxic, by the way. So I don't recommend anyone to start League of Legends. <laughs> it will eat your life. Um, and I think many people can second this. So yeah, uh, that's that, that's how this came together. 
you meant you mentioned League of, Le- League of Legends, and I did I wrote something the other week about kind of Louis Vuitton had some skins in League of Legends, and it was one of the kind of the first brand activations in the game. I guess when you were playing it, none of that existed. There was in any of the games. Was there any? Was there a culture of brands kind of cross pollinating with games at all? It was much more rare than it is today, but I think I was still a bit of active when the Louis Vuitton thing hit. So I was very excited for that skin, actually. I was just like, oh, this is super huge. So basically makes me feel like the same when today, like a big brand's entered the Web3 space. I was like back in the days, oh, such a big brand's get aware of like League of Legends and include skins there. So that makes me really excited back then. Uh, and it was also very, very cool skin drop, I guess, uh, as far as I can recall. Yeah. But it wasn't as popular as today, obviously. I think gaming as a gen, as gen in, in general was much smaller back then. Um, and I don't think like not, not many brands saw the value or even like gaming had a, had a much different stigma to it. I think back in the days was only for the very nerdy people. I mean, it still is to some extent, but um, I think it was just like very foreign for people like to associate something with gamers and definitely was not the audience because if you have to look at it from a brand's perspective, why why would they do skins in a League of Legends game? Because they want to, you know, raise the brand awareness or like tap into like a new audience. And I think it wasn't really what you would connect to a cool brand like playing League of Legends. I think it were, were like way too different from, from another. Isn't it? Isn't it a little bit too... You know, to like, and I've never been a kind of a hardcore gamer. You know, I'd used to play sports games, uh, like when I was younger, but haven't really, you know, jumped back into that. Isn't there a little bit of like, how many of like the 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 true gamers look at the brand stuff coming in and they're like, oh, like stop diluting the coolness. Like the coolness <laughs> kind of comes from the bottom. It doesn't need to come from the top. Like. What, what was your perspective as a I, gamer? I knew you were going to ask that question. Exact authenticity. I knew you were going there. Yeah. What is what 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 was the take from a from a gamer? Not just you, but like the communities you were involved with, the people that you were playing with. How did how did they see brands coming into the space? I think a lot of people didn't really care, which is exactly what you said. And uh, there, I also can instantly draw parallels to today's existing Web3 niche or bubble or space, because you always have those two sides. The one side, which is a bit more commercially orientated, like people that hang out on LinkedIn, for example, from this bubble, they're much more excited when like a big brand enters the game because they see the upside on like mass adoption. But the Web3 niche people, like this really centered focus group, there are, yeah, there's, they, they scrutinize basically every step that the brands make. And I don't think they like to, to see big entities coming into a decentralized playing field. Um, and it was like kind of the same into gaming. I don't think there weren't as much consequences attached to brands coming into gaming. And I think when it really took off, I was already out of the game. So I didn't really witness firsthand about like how, how people were talking. But back then when I was really excited for the LVMH drop, for example, uh, not LVMH, Louis Vuitton drop, I don't think as much people as I cared because I, I was very fashion affine even back then and I don't think a lot of gamers are. So they just want to play that game and, and leave me the fuck alone, basically. Right, 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 right. What um, about you, Jeremy? Do you think, okay, is authenticity more, less or equally important in Web3 as it was or is in Web2? I, I think, I, to me, I think it's it's crucial in in really any means of, building a community around a brand or, or anything, anything that's going on, you know, unless it's a purely utilitarian play, like, you know, I don't know, look at something like, look at something like toilet paper, right? Something that you need, right? 
but are you going to care? Like, what are you going to do? You, do you love Charmin that much more because they're authentic with their bears, or you know, whatever? Um, I think I think utilitarian like products maybe are a little bit different. But if you have if you have something that's a little deeper and more connected to the people that are involved in it and what they do in their ikigai, how does it fold into their you know their uh, quadrant of you know what they love to do, what they can be paid to do, and what the world needs, right? Um, so I don't know why I brought up toilet paper. That was odd. But, I don't know, uh, but like, pretty utilitarian, though. If you, like, <laughs> I can imagine use some it like strange <laughs> NFT drops. Right. Right. No, I think authenticity is 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 pretty critical. You know, no matter what you're doing, especially you know if you're trying to grow a community. But let's Dominic. Let's talk about. Um, I'm curious at your take on this because I always think about Web Web three as this reinvention of what I call audience infrastructure. And, you know, what that means to me is, you know, Mark and I talk about this bi-directional value exchange, meaning the brand is not just broadcasting to the audience. There is a, like a two-way street happening and you're, this, this technology is enabling that two-way street, this audience infrastructure for fans of brands, audience of brands to engage and even participate, right? So what, what's your take on, on that? Yeah, I don't think that we need blockchain technology or like NFTs exactly for this purpose. I think that's a shift that we can see on the brand side, like in general, even if it's not tied at all to Web3. But I think it's a great accelerator. So this is what I also tell a lot of people or a lot of brands that we talk to. So when we talk about Web3, it's really not only about the tech. It's like just a whole, it's it, it's just a real mindset shift. So it goes from like this one too many, like, Dia, uh, like monologue type of conversation to a many-to-many -many culture where like everybody has a saying and I think it gives a lot of upside for brands when they have like this direct connection to their target audience basically so they can speak much more directly to them I think it's much more appealing you can you know co-creation is a big word in this and I see a lot of brands even though as I said aside from Web3 doing this already we see it on Instagram where people do like brands do votes like what would you like to see our next product to be or like which which from those products you like the most and I think Web3 and then basically giving them with this ownership aspect and giving them, uh, even though it's just like, um, how do I say this? Even though if it's just like on the surface, people feel that they have like a stake in the brand. And I think that gives a much deeper emotional connection and it really accelerates everything what you just mentioned. I don't think we need blockchain for this at all, but I think it's a great accelerator. That's a good way to look at it. I, I, and, and brand is interesting too. So we, we've, we've got a lot of brand experts that are, that are in our audience and in our networks and, and, you know, brand is, is, you know, some people that aren't experts in that field think about brand as, Oh, it's a logo and a color scheme, maybe a sonic identity if they're forward thinking and, you know, some, some of those other things, but the brand actually comes to life when the audience interacts with with the ethos of the company, right? So I've always thought, like, have you ever run across, well, let me ask you this, the the idea that like a brand could totally open source, like say it's like a Web3 startup, why wouldn't a brand, why would, as an experiment, just completely open source everything and just say, <laughs> we're starting from scratch, we're building this thing that I think you guys will love, here's a little teaser, help us build the brand. Like, what are the odds of that happening? I think we have seen it happen a couple of times, sometimes better, sometimes uh, not so good. I think one of the greatest examples of this might be the Nouns DAO. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's just yeah. like 
it's really one of the pinnacle projects that like put this into practice. And I think they did it very well. And I think, yeah, basically in giving people uh, this ownership aspect, so everybody's like part of the DAO, everybody has a saying and they can vote with their tokens. And then they have this treasury where people can basically do proposals for projects, uh, like brand projects, and then it gets funded by the DAO if everybody is aligned and wants, wants to see this happen. I think this is one of the, one of the greatest examples of like a self, self-running brand that was like really created from, yeah, from, from this ecosystem that established, which is like, okay, we have this like one idea what the nouns should be. Um, it's not like set in stone. And then just other people joined and they have, have a shared mission of making this a cool brand, of like doing cool projects. And I think this like really flourished for them. And we see them still after, I think, one and a half or two years of existence. They're one of the few DAOs that still exist. I mean, they had a little faux pas, uh, I think, a few weeks or months ago where they basically had to split the DAO because uh, people were not aligned anymore on, on like some aspects. But yeah, uh, would be a great example of like how this could work. I think in general, uh, when I can just like add this one more sentence, I think in most cases you need to have a bit more direction and frame for people so so this can work because I see a lot of DAOs not working exactly for this reason. So there's like real no hierarchy at all. And I think there should be right from the start, there should be people who set a certain frame and then try to keep this frame and keep this thing running because especially if there's like no direct financial incentive behind the actions that the people do. So, I mean, everybody's busy. Um, yeah, they tend to just like run very slow, I guess. And it's more of like discussing discussing about discussing instead of like doing decision, decisions and getting things really moving. I think that um, on Nowsdow, I'll just put a link in the chat to Kalita, which is like the first film European funded by NFTs. It's like a couple of years old now that the funding side, but Nowsdow played a big part in that. They've got a big crypto punk community and they, they did exactly what Dominic said. They voted on where to fund the money and they funded, they helped to fund this film, which I think is proof of how how good a DAO can be at attributing funds in the right place when the right people and the right project align, which um, obviously having the right people in the right project align is... <laughs> to to me, yeah. Stuff, it, so I, I researched DAOs for about a year. I wrote for for a, for an outlet you know, on a weekly basis about DAOs, about the, the, the philosophy behind DAOs and how people can come together in this emergent way. And, you know, Disruptors and curious minds, you always hear us talk about uh, this this oscillation between hierarchical systems and emergent systems. And then last week with our with our guest Julio, he he talked about the idea of the oscillation between creativity and execution. And and w- what do you think the future future holds for? I mean, th- do you think that would be a key uh, key thing to figure out philosophically? To, to make a lot of this technological stuff work, Dominic? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the technology, I mean, it's already there. So from an infrastructure infrastructure perspective, DAOs could be working. Um, and I think those concepts are very interesting, uh, but they don't work always. But I think for brands, this uh, is also a thing that's going to be very relevant in the future. Because basically, why would you not want... Because how do I see DAOs, okay? So basically, people come together for a shared vision, shared purpose, so or like for the same brand because they share excitement for it. And I don't see why brands in the future would like hire people for every gig, for example. Like if you want to do marketing campaign, if you need creatives, 
I mean, there are like things like brand guidelines and things that definitely have to be set for for other people to operate or to do gigs for. But I see DAOs like it's just like big task boards, so everybody knows. Okay, there are like certain tasks to do, and if I want, I can take ownership of one task, do it, and get rewarded in a way. And this really taps for me. Maybe I'm going a bit uh, off the topic right now, but for me, DAOs. Uh, also, if it's just like a subset of the brand, and it's like the whole brand needs to be a full DAO, it's really like the future of work. Because like, what's better than like tapping into the people that love your brand that that were coming together anyways for like this shared purpose that are following you for exactly the mission or for what you do, and then just giving some some jobs, for example, like marketing stuff, creatives, I don't know, giving that in the hand of people that love your brand and that are very self motivated to do it. So I think uh, DAOs are really not in a way that we see it today, but I think we need much more fine-tuning in the next five or ten years. But I see it like as a vital and very essential part of almost every company in the future without being too 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 positive here. Yeah, and these and these principles have been tested for a while prior to Web3, prior to blockchain, prior to this you know emergent technology that's coming out to to to, to make it make all of these things happen. Dean Wilson, uh Dead Mouse's manager. Uh, they've been doing this stuff for years in their Discord where they're actually able to identify and elevate the super fans in the Discord and put them into leadership positions. And they they do that because there's an excitement, there's a want to, it's not a have to. But with DAOs, it's challenging, right? Because a lot of people, we all come together really well as humans when we're excited about something. And then when that excitement starts to fade, then we're like, well, where's the money? You know, and a lot of the, it, a lot of the DAOs take a long time to get to get the money and the vision realized. How can how can brands how can brands balance that those two things? I think that applies to NFTs as well because exactly what you described is kind of a description of many of the facets of Web three. Is that yeah, when the excitement's there, hurrah! Everyone can just nail their identity to the flag and sail with the ship. But as soon as a little bit of doubt comes in, then as we've seen, everybody sails away. So yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, uh, I don't want to sound too negative here, but that's sort of a problem that we really can solve. I think this is just like how we humans are. We always need new incentives to 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 stay, stay with something. And I mean, like you guys too with the podcast, for example, or like everybody who's self-employed, they can speak firsthand. Like at first, it's like starting something new is so exciting. So there's like no problem on like sticking around and like doing the work every day for like long hours. But yeah, once you hit like a slump or probably things are not going so well, you really need a lot of motivation to to push through this. And I don't think you can really translate that to a community, even though it's like super fans. I mean, they're very, very self-motivated. But at one point, you have to keep the excitement up. You have to uh, you have to continue delivering incentives for people to stay in the loop and to want uh, to want to participate. But I think when you're like really when you work with this like really focused distilled group of super 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 fans, I think a few of them, even though uh, most of the community, they, they will not be active at all, right? I think we see that today also like in traditional communities. I think 90% of people who are quote unquote part of your community, they're like pretty inactive. They're just like observers. They just spectate and view. And just a very few participate at all. And I think the people who will even push through times where there's like not so much going on, this is very much harder to find. But I think with the right incentives, um, it can be done, but only to, to, to a certain extent, if that makes sense. Yeah, we talk about user journeys a lot and UX design and digital experiences, right? So what principles of, of UX design can be, can be pulled into community design, right? And like how, I, I think it's about like 
segmenting those little points of interaction into the smallest of tiptoes into the pool, right? Instead of instead of being like, hey, we want you to do this thing. And you're like, whoa, that's a heavy lift, man. Like, I'm not ready to do that yet. But how how can you get what are some great strategies to like get people to tiptoe from just observers in the background to like getting pulled into the next potential phase of participation in a in a brand community or or something else? Yeah, as you said, I mean storytelling I think is a very vital and essential part of it and this is probably where like the ikigai uh, thing comes in, comes into play because i think it's much more easy or not not easy it's basically the hard way but the only way where you can like keep the incentive up i think uh, even though when when sentiment is a bit lower is when really re people come together for a real clear and authentic shared purpose right and this is why why i try to implement this like philosophy uh, first i i applied it to myself And then I tried to apply it to business strategies because, you know, when we think of Web3 or like interacting much more close with your community, there needs to be something substantial inside. So like a message, message that you can translate, a real purpose. And I think if you have this real purpose and people are following you exactly for this reason, um, I think this is a great way. And then you just need to work a lot like with storytelling, as you said, cut it into the smallest pieces possible. Um, and also I think people feel very honored, like when they get hurt. I think this is like a very deep human um deep human desire that we get hurt and recognized and i think like doing that with your community hosting contests for example like as i said uh for like ad creators for example like when you launch a new product why not let this like uh, why not do a co-creation with your community and let someone from your audience or like from your super fans create this uh create this creative for for a certain campaign And then you you will have like a dynamic. People will be incentivized. People will be very proud that they get hurt and that their piece will probably see the uh, light of day in uh, from the from the brand's perspective. Yeah, so yeah absolutely. Yeah, totally, totally <laughs> resonating with our brand our brand buddies in the chat. Jamie's talking about uh, you know kind of aligning with that as well with this idea of direct direct democracy versus representative democracy, right? And and kind of pulling those evangelical brand heroes out of the community and kind of like having that bit of leadership in that it's it's interesting i think about it as like in that in that case when you have a community that is like kind of morphing and doing it at the same time it almost reinvents leadership right and leadership becomes more of a spectrum versus like one dude at the top right like how do you how do you encourage that dom in the communities that you work with like for for people to take leadership Or, or, or how, or how leadership evolves, or how, how to structure leadership in a group like that, and it, so break it down like this: instead of me sitting at the top saying, "Hey, Mark and Dom, this is what we're doing," the three of us are equally kind of kicking around ideas, and then, and then, Dom, you and I realize Mark is the better leader at the moment for this particular mission. Like, how do you activate that philosophy within an organization, or, or have you? Is that a very, very I, I maybe uh, maybe Jamie Schwartz can answer that, but that seems almost like an idea rather than a reality right now. I mean, you mentioned Dead Mouse and okay, in a Discord channel for a, a DJ, I think there's a different philosophy to how this works. But having an actual brand giving over leadership responsibilities or even minor decision making responsibilities to an individual because they show a keen interest in the brand is. It's asking a lot. Well, think, think, think about what Dominic said too that really stood out to me. You mentioned like whole brands shouldn't be DAOs. There should be little segments 
of brands that are down, like little experiments, like put a, put a group together and have an experiment and like, let it stir around a little bit. Isn't that, isn't that like the strategy you were talking about, Dom? Yeah, exactly. So I think, uh, as you said, like having people say in like small decisions, more like a collective level or like on, on an individual level, I don't think it's like a smart thing right now to uh, basically raise people from the community into some kind of like leadership positions. I mean, for this Uh, they probably would still need to be hired and could not operate uh, fully on their own. I think this is really important. And I think people taking leadership, it's, of a, it's like a phenomenon that I witnessed. It's way harder to create this instead of like really coming in with a real strong purpose. As I just said, I think this is, this is really important. And the more people can resonate with it and the more authentic, authentic, uh, authentic you are the more people will resonate with their message and i think leaders just like very naturally spin then out of this community so this is what i saw happen i never tried to establish superficial frames or like tactics to to put people into leaderships uh, leadership positions there or like for people to take leadership or like ownership of of certain things i just uh, i just suggest that in a very open conversation flat hierarchies as we call it nowadays uh, it's a bit worn off i think this is really important so rather than as you said to go to people and say uh, you 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 should do this i think just like throw the uh, like throw the question in the conversation and have like an open dialogue about who should do it and i think voting mechanisms are pretty handy there and the advantage we now have with tokens is that people can then um, use their tokens to vote for something. And I think this is really how it goes. So if you have like a strong mission, a really strong purpose, people resonate with it, there will always be some people who will feel a calling to do a bit more than, is, than what's asked from them. And this is how, how I saw this play out the best when it just like evolves very naturally with an open, open conversation rather than trying to push people into certain tasks or into certain positions. So just make clear that every voice is heard and uh, let, the, let the community decide. I just want to, on that, you, you mentioned token gated, and I'd like to kind of get into token gated content in a minute. Just a thought about what Jeremy was just saying and how maybe certain industries lend themselves to that better than others. I mean, even though you, you can't tell from me, like but writing about fashion, luxury fashion, maybe an industry like that where you could have a micro DAO that maybe, I don't know, is designing the spring collection for a, a certain brand and then they can open that to the, the public and then they, they can you know it's a very creative idea anyway so people get really involved they can create something then they could vote on i don't know who designs the the, the jacket for a, a spring collection or something like that at a micro level that could be a good experiment and then i think other music obviously is an obvious um candidate for that as well Popped yeah, up, uh, popped up jamie's note because it's talking about exactly what you're what you mentioned there uh mark Not just LeBron James Nikes, but Dominic Nikes and Dominic is in charge of the micro DAO inside the Nike. Yeah, there you go. Exactly that. And Dominic gets to design his own Nikes or or maybe Dominic and some other people design some Nikes and then the community votes on which of those Nikes are going to end up on LinkedIn by all of the influence going, I got my new Nikes. Exactly. I mean, it's like very also very easy to add a financial incentive there because if you just like have people, I mean, this is very complicated in the in today's regulatory landscape still, and it will be for 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 quite some time. But why not have like people who co-created the product or who took ownership of a product also get like part of the revenue streams, right? And this could be also, especially for digital products, this could be mostly automated through the blockchain to through smart contracts. I think Nike's is always. Uh, 
already doing that with the Nike.swoosh program where people like can, could co-create sneakers, they get released as like digital versions and then they I don't think they have this out yet, but in the future, I think there's plan to, to have a marketplace for digital Nike products. And as far as I know, um, then people will also get like a revenue share from digital products that get sold on this marketplace. I think this is like a perfect incentive, right? Because it doesn't matter how, how, how strong the purpose is. I mean, there are like some purposes where people just unite for, where they don't even have a financial incentive at all. But I think this is where you can much easily, even on a micro level, just like reward people for certain things. And I think this could be just as well um, as much as an incentive as it's needed. So, yeah, tying back into last week where we talked about curiosity being activated, and this is a belief in my Right to Know You program as well, where once curiosity is activated, you have an unlimited fuel tank to pursue anything you want to pursue almost without expectation in a, in a funny way. Right. So I, I completely agree with, with what you just said right there. Um, so let's, let's, let's take a look at, let's, let's dive into your, uh, how the Ikigai framework feeds into your advisory framework when you're working with brands. So let's take an example. Mark and I, uh, have a podcast. It's not about emerging tech because we don't know where we, in this instance, we don't know anything about emerging tech, right? It's a podcast about ice cream, let's say, and we're like ice cream, sommeliers, right? So Dom, we're, we're, we have the, the world's leading ice cream podcast. Um, we're brilliant ice cream people. We know nothing about tech. We've heard about Web3. We've got a brilliant audience, an engaged audience. We know nothing about it. Walk us through how you, speaking of tiptoeing into the pool, how you, how you have first conversations with brands using us in the, as an example. I mean, in this case, it's probably a bit tougher because what we do mostly is uh, because you seem to you seem to to know your purpose very well. Whether you have like a podcast that's just like solely about ice cream, what I found much more, or like what we do much more do, is like going to companies that that already exist. And to some level, I feel like a lot of brands, a lot of companies, they really forgot what their ikigai initially was. So I think everybody starts with a reason. But I think you know, especially when you grow into a larger enterprise or like a larger brand, you have like different departments and like people lose the connection to the initial vision. And you also always have to think about immediate revenue. I mean, everybody's just looking out to to sustain themselves, and you much easily lose the idea of why you even started. So I think a lot of the workshops that we do is like trying to find back to this. I can make like a very good example of this because we recently work with a larger uh, German brand that does audio tales. So they are like basically in their essence, they are storytellers. But when they approached us to do like a Web3 project, they had like a very different idea about what we should do there. So they were like, I don't know how much I can say about this, but it, should, it, it was supposed to be an art collection. So very classic uh, 2022, I guess, 22 kind of NFT style. So they were like trying to to, to tie episodes from then to like artworks, which are, which are differ differently interpreted by different artists which is a cool idea in general. I mean, their fans would love to collect that for sure. But then through like a, a lot of workshopping, we got more and more into the essence, like what, what do you guys really do? Like you tell stories. So we try to develop or like we, we develop the strategy that goes much more aligned with like storytelling. So it will be like a co-created experience where our fans, and now I really got to say, uh, got to see how much I can say, where, where fans the first time in the history of the brands have the have a possibility to co-create an episode of this tale together with the company. So it's like really getting, just like what we were talking about all the time, getting your community in, 
distilling out your super fans and taking them and offering them uh, tailored or like much more personalized experiences through NFT. They can then log into a platform and co-create their first episode with us. I think I got a bit off from the initial uh, question, but this is like one, one good example because when we started, it wasn't really about storytelling at all. After the workshops, they were much more clear again, like what they actually do. Because I also have to say like the departments that you work with mostly in brands depends on what you do, obviously, and, and the size of the brand. Um, they are not often, like, for example, for, for this special company, those people that we work with, they were not the people, like, writing the stories, right? So they hadn't really a connection to it. And I think, like, going to this, like, where does your brand come from and digging deeper and deeper into the, like, purpose, into the ikigai of the brand, um, it make them understand again that you could really say this into the, in the work dynamic that, that evolved after this, that they really found back to, like, why they probably started working at this company 10, 15, 20 years ago because we're, like, very senior people. And then they... Uh, at one point, and this was like very beautiful to see, they sat on like, we did like a brainstorming session. And then I sat all like all on their tables, uh, brainstorming and filling out cards because we tried to uh, spit up a narrative there. And I could really feel how like the workshopping brought them back to like their essential values or like the essential purpose of the brand. I think this is like a very cool example. Um, I think for, for people who do a podcast solely for ice cream because they love ice cream so much and they have like a vision behind it anyways because otherwise probably wouldn't do a podcast solely about ice cream. I think it's not necessary for everyone. Some people know why they do something and they don't need to, you know, find something there. Jeremy, you've so, really so, got me worked upon this now because now I'm imagining NFT ice creams and then kind of geolocating these NFTs to open up discount special ice cream flavors when you go into this particular shop in this particular neighborhood or like you could do a collaboration with a with a beach town that's suffering because of the economic crisis but if we all go to this beach town you can have ice cream when you get there so many ideas got it you got you all spun up man I love it yeah I love it uh Dom so I yeah I loved I love your points there I think so so just to clarify what what the way you fold in the ikigai piece into the advice, the brand advisory, and then secondarily kind of the extension of how they set up something in emerging tech slash web three. So it's almost this, this start with why kind of philosophy, you know, try to get people honed in and back to what the root of everything is. What, I think that's really important, man, because we've seen a lot of uh, web three executions that come out from brands that are just like, man, we just got to get out there and do something, push some stuff out there. And it's like, man, that wasn't, even close to aligned with your community, with with your um, you know, with your brand ethos and all of that stuff. So I think I think that's really that's really a cool cool approach. With with experiments with what you just mentioned, is that tie into I read something about your OODA framework for Web three experiments. I think the most important part for every brand is to really start observing like what's going on in space, how like other brands are doing initiatives, um, sort of real of like trying to mimic stuff. But I think just like observe what's going on, where could we fit, fit in? And this is like where the fit in part, this is where the second part comes in, the orientate. Um, so this is where you can see, okay, like what's, what's been done in the space, what are the values, what are the people uh, what are the people like? What what does the target audience want? And where can we find our place in there? So really, not trying to alienate your brand and doing something that's like very off, but really seeing okay, like what's and there comes the ikigai again into play. Like what are really our what's really our core purpose? What's really what we want to do or say with the brand? And then trying to see like how can we fit in there and very authentically. So it's not just trying to do what everybody else does. I think we saw a lot of brands doing uh, very bad initiatives or like trying to trying to 
tap too much into the culture, let's say like this. For example, I don't know if I should mention any brands here, but there's like this very popular screenshot where Pepsi and some other brand are like, GM, my friend, walk me and stuff like this. So they, they adapt a very foreign language. This is what you shouldn't do. So you should really orientate and see where you can fit in authentically. And then decide, obviously. So once you made your homework, once you made your due diligence um, and really evaluated like which piece of the puzzle would fit in there, what would really resonate with what our brand core is and what would be very authentic to do. This is where you just decide, <laughs> as I said. So then you just like go for go for one round. Um, and the last part is act, right? So then this is, uh, this is the part where you put everything together, like your research, where can we fit in, what are our core things? And then on top of that, like based on that, you develop your Web3 strategy basically and uh, then go for it. So, and this is where the experimentation part comes into play. So this is what I uh, often advise and I would uh, put, every, put everyone to heart is, you should just like start with very small experiments, right? So I think you don't need to think right from the start about like a very holistic strategy. So when we come to the orientate part, you should really see like how could we even fit the subset of our brand or like some some small piece in it. Like what can we throw in there? What we can experiment with, which does not, um, which not which is not dangerous for the or like puts puts the puts the rest of the brand at risk. So do like small pilot projects, test balloons as we call them. Um, and try to move from there. I think this is like the most important thing. And this is what I uh, really got from talking to a lot of potential clients because they feel very overwhelmed if they, you know, if you're overwhelmed with the full spectrum and then uh, basically try to tell them that they now have to shift uh, fully into Web3 as a company, making everything the way we do it there in this space. Um, so I think like getting just like small initiative out, try, try, try to get comfortable with the new audience, with the new ethos, um, don't put your brand at risk and just like experiment and adapt. Uh, I think it was like this with every technology that we have seen. It was like this on social media. So not everybody, like not every company hopped on the social media train fully. Um, took a lot of time until they did like own departments for that and crafted dedicated campaigns. Um, at first, it's just like try out, get a bit, get a bit experience, get to know the people, get to know the culture try to adapt it and put it onto something or like a subset of your brand that doesn't not put the put put everything else at risk. I think that's that summarizes it somewhat. That makes right. that makes a lot of yeah. sense. A lot of parallels with social media, how that came out and and how people didn't jump right in and they kind of tested and, and iterated. And and keep in mind too, the way I think about it too is is the idea of, you know, the the outcomes and the in the, you know, what what you know, brands would call KPIs, key performance indicators. And, you know, those may not be financially driven. They may not be, you know, acquisition of audience driven, but they may provide the knowledge and awareness to take the next experiment closer to where it needs to be. Right. Um, yeah. Well, this has been great. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and thanks for giving us a little bit of insight uh, into how you think and how you uh, apply a, a, a fundamental and well-known principle called Ikigai to a framework of reminding brands how to get back there and making sure those brands experiment with the right through line to start with uh, and, and take them through to, to the finals. So thanks thanks so much for joining. Um, I want to give another quick shout out to our friends at Ripple, W-R-I-P-P-L-E, Marketing's on-demand talent platform. They've been a great supporter of the show and have, believe it or not, actually talked about some DAO uh, experiments in the future for some of the freelancers involved. I know um, okay. 
Dixie has been uh, putting up some great frameworks there. But hey, if you need to flex and, and get some talent, WRIPPLE.com. Mark and I are on there. If you want, if you need our superpowers, uh, you can check it out. Thinkingonpaper.xyz is where you can find all about the show. All our previous shows will be on YouTube, Spotify, and syndicated across all podcast platforms. Yeah. A final thought, because I just wanted to pick up on the last thing that Dominic said about the parallel, and you went, I've heard with the parallels with social media, but the parallels go back to the beginning. They go back to the internet. The same parallels exist. You go back to advertising in the 1950s. The same parallels exist. You go before that, whatever came before that. There was, like, I'm always reminded of that. Um, there's a TED video by um, Derek Sivers, I think it is, about how to start a movement. And he kind of explains with this kind of funny video about how you start a movement. It starts with one person sitting in the field and they do something and somebody else comes. And then two people just spend a bit of time in the field having fun. And then somebody else says, oh, what's going on over there? And they join in. And it's this like slow process. And after three, maybe eight come. And then you've got eight and 15, 20. And then suddenly boom, everyone piles in. And you, that's how you create a movement. And I think that the, the parallels and the similarities kind of cross through tech so yeah absolutely couldn't agree more um as in hopefully the fields that we're dancing in uh disruptors and curious minds (laughs) you will continue to join us uh we've got a couple of great guests coming up as we close out uh season one rachel noonan with forward studios uh part of the folks behind uh, a lot of the coachella activations um one of the first people to do some of those digital to physical experiences in music we've got evan shapiro coming up who basically is controversial has has mapped all the most complex systems in the world for people like mark and i to understand really well we've got neil redding uh sebastian from uh, uh the sandbox you know so we've got a couple of great guests coming up towards the end of the year we've got some exciting news related to some uh, community interactivity, some bi-directional value exchange, uh, if you will, disruptors and curious minds. So stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time.